Turn, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew 14, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 21 today as we continue through this book. Matthew 14, 13. We've all heard the old adage that repetition is the key to learning. Well, it's actually true, you know. Almost anything you want to learn involves endless repetition. You want to go to the gym and get shape? Get in shape? Get used to the term 15 apps. 15 reps, I'm sorry. You want to learn to play a piano? Get used to doing finger exercises 10 times each. You want to learn a new language? Get ready to memorize verb conjugations. There's just no escaping it. We learn by repeatedly doing and hearing the same thing. Don't you think God knows that? That's probably why the Bible says things more than once. That may be why there are four Gospels, four accounts of the life of Jesus. Those Gospel records contain the uh, miracle, many miracle stories of what Jesus did. I count 33 miracles that I can identify, each done to teach us something. And many of those miracles are recorded more than one of the Gospels, just to make sure we get the point. But interestingly, interesting there is, interestingly, there is only one of Jesus' miracles that is found in all four of the Gospels. Have any guess of what that is? It's Matthew 14, 13. The miracle is Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's our text today. Let me read it. Matthew 14, 13 to 21. When Jesus heard what had happened, that is to John, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to a village and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Interesting text, familiar story. What should we learn from this account? Well, today I want to suggest two things. First is this, our hearts hunger for Jesus. Our hearts hunger for Jesus. This account is uh, so well known, you've probably heard it repeatedly, but let's just review for a moment. Jesus, hearing of the brutal killing of John the Baptist, decides 
to take his disciples and get away for a little break, and he heads up into the hills north of the Sea of Galilee. But there's no time for a break. He gets there, and there's already a crowd forming, bringing their sick friends and family for him to heal. And Jesus, rather than turn them away, he, he, though he's tired, he has compassion on them. And he, gave, begin, he again begins to heal and to teach. Well, before you know it, hours have passed, and everyone's getting hungry, and the sun's starting to go down, and it's getting late, and the disciples are aware of this. And they want Jesus to send people away, so they go into the towns around there and buy some food. And Jesus says, you don't need to do that. You guys feed them. <laughs> to which they reply, we have only five little loaves of bread and two little fish. That was one little boy's lunch we read from the other Gospels. So Jesus says, well, have everybody sit down on the grass. And um, he takes that one little lunch and he blesses it and begins to divide it up and give it to the disciples, telling them to go and distribute it to the people. And this continues, and they keep distributing. He keeps breaking up and handing out. The food never ran out until everyone was fed and satisfied, and they picked up the leftovers, 12 baskets full. 5,000 men plus their wives and children had been miraculously fed by Jesus using one little boy's lunch. So what was going on here? What's the point of it all? Well, I think it's significant that when we look in the Old Testament, we find that there are some kind of similar situations. In 2 Kings 4, the prophet Elisha had fed 100 men with 20 little barley cakes. And there, there too, there had been food left over. Early in 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah had seen God work in the life of a widow to keep her jar of flour and her jug of oil from running out for over a long period of time. All of this, all of which might indicate that Jesus doing a feeding kind of miracle would indicate that he was another of the prophets. Oh, but the old, in the Old Testament, there actually had been an even greater feeding miracle that took place when God used Moses to miraculously de deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, and um, there God uh, caused manna to fall from heaven to feed the people every morning for 40 years. That's a feeding miracle. And in Deuteronomy 18, God promised he's going to send another prophet like Moses. So the Jewish tradition had grown that when the Messiah came, the, the one like Moses, God would again restore this provision of manna for his people. Free food. Popular idea. The Jewish Mishnah said it this way, quote, You shall not find the man in this age, but you shall find it in the age to come. What did the first Redeemer do? He brought down manna. And the last Redeemer will also bring down manna. And so now here's Jesus, miraculously feeding the crowd of God's people out in a desert place. Surely, this was God's great prophet, the promised one, like Moses. Now, if Matthew's account was the only record we had, that's probably all we would know. The people thought Jesus was the promised Moses to come. But remember, we have four accounts. Three more. 
that teach us about the same event. And so scripture compares with scripture and we learn some things, especially from God, John's gospel, for he actually has a very uh, a, a extensive description of this miracle and Jesus' teaching. And he actually writes down things Jesus said about this. So let me read a little bit of it from John 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. <laughs> and then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The New Testament uh, scholar C.H. Dodd uh, kind of wrote a summary of Jesus' teaching. And let me just read his summary. He writes, the multitude is prepared to find Je in Jesus a second Moses who will restore the gift of manna. But Jesus sets this idea aside. Christ gives something better than manna. He gives the bread of life. More than that, he is the bread of life. He is the life giver. Union with Christ is eternal life. Man is no food of eternal life. Those who ate it died. But those who eat the bread, which is Christ, never die. He is the only giver of food which endures to eternal life. He is himself the living bread. Now, folks, we easily miss the impact of this because we're so accustomed to a readily available, sumptuous diet. But in that culture, it was different. Harvests were more uncertain. There was not always enough to eat. In that culture, bread was a staple. Without bread, people died. Dr. Jim Boyce writes, if you see that, then you also see that Jesus was claiming to be the, the, the one without, Jesus was claiming to be the one whom men and women could not do without. So you're trying to do without him this morning? Oh, I know you probably recognize Jesus to be a great prophet and teacher. Those people did too. But we who claim to know so much about him sometimes act as if he is really something optional. He's good if we have a taste for religious life, but he's not really necessary. And then we wonder why we have such a nagging spiritual hunger in our souls. Why are we so unfilled and so unsatisfied, no matter what we accumulate, no matter what good things come our way? Worse yet, when we don't recognize that he is the one our hearts long for, then we fill our souls with spiritual junk food, or worse, even tasty poison, which destroys the inner person. Oh, Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 so that we might know 
that he means it when he says, I am the true bread of life who alone can satisfy your hungry soul. So come to him. Feed on him. Trust him. Rest in him. Live for him. For apart from him, there is no real life. Your heart is hungering for Jesus. Oh, you thought you just wanted more money or a better position or a newer house. Your heart is hungering for Jesus. And all the spiritual junk food in the world will not satisfy it. That's the first thing we learn. And there's a second truth here. That's this. Share the living bread with the hungry. Share the living bread with the hungry. You know, the more I read this passage, the more I see what's going on between Jesus and the disciples, not just with the crowd, but between Jesus and his disciples. This is not just a miracle to present Jesus to the crowd. Here Jesus is teaching his closest associates about ministry. Think what exactly Jesus did on this occasion. Sure, he fed a great multitude of people, but how exactly did he do that? What precisely did he do? Jim Boyce explains, Jesus could have lifted up his hands to heaven and commanded that man to come down from heaven, and it would have come. Or he could have created a loaf of bread to suddenly appear in every man's pocket and thus fed the whole multitude. But Jesus didn't do any of those things. Instead, he began to work through others, through his disciples. Indeed, look at verse 16, a key verse. Jesus replied, when they wanted to send him away to find food, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Can you imagine if you were one of those men? Say, what? <laughs> this is most remarkable when you consider the disciples' attitude, too. Back in verse 14, Jesus, in spite of his weariness and, his, and, 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 and the weight of John being beheaded, Jesus saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. But in verse 15, the disciples, always seeking to relieve themselves of uh, some problem, said, why don't you send them away, Jesus? Send them away. <laughs> Quite different, isn't it? But the biggest dilemma for the disciples was their utter inadequacy. And Jesus seems to be purposely confronting them on their weakness. When he says, you feed them. How can they do that? They can't do that. It's impossible. You know, effective service for the Lord is impossible. It cannot begin until we recognize our utter inadequacy. Think of Moses, a great leader. But Moses admitted when God tried to call him, he said, I can't talk. I can't convince the people that, that God sent me. I can't. And God said, okay, then I'll use your stick. <laughs> God doesn't have a sense of humor. I think about Peter. Peter thought he was all that, you know. He, he's telling Jesus how 
faithful he'll be no matter what, all the way to death, until he was challenged and he denied, publicly denied that he even knew the Lord while Jesus was being tried and he was utterly humiliated. Only after that did Jesus say to Peter, feed my sheep. Paul couldn't stand being weak. When he had an ailment, he begged God repeatedly to take it away. Please, God, take it away. Take it away. And God refused. He said, no. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Folks, the same is true today, you know. As long as you think you have great assets which God needs, you're useless to him. The task is greater than all of your resources. You may have five beautiful croissants and some pickle herring. It doesn't feed the starving. If the task of serving Christ depends on our resources, the battle is already lost. But our text goes on. In verse 18, Jesus looked at the meager resources and he said, bring those things to me. Having recognized their own insufficiency, their own inadequacy, the disciples are now useful to him. So Jesus says, bring me what you have. Nothing. And then Jesus blesses it and begins to give it back to them, telling them to go and give it to the hungry people. And, and, and he continues to multiply it and multiply it and multiply it, sitting in the back. Oh, the miracle is all from Jesus' power. But he allows his disciples to participate in its accomplishment. And so it is with everything we do to serve the Lord. We're like the disciples, wide-eyed and amazed at what's taking place. Conscious of our profound inadequacy, but confirmed each moment in our confidence that Christ is sufficient. As we obediently go out to share the living bread with those who are hungry. Years ago, a man named D.T. Niles, he's a pastor in Ceylon, which is now called Sri Lanka, famously said, and you've probably heard this quote, I have heard it for years, said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I fear we've made it a bit more complicated than that. We're all into techniques into analyzing felt needs and selecting target groups and generally turning evangelism into a massive church program. But this morning, I would just remind you that we're all surrounded by all kinds of people with hungry hearts. They all need the same thing we need, living bread for a starving soul. You have no ability to change anybody's hearts, nor do I. You certainly can't argue someone's way into the kingdom. Sorry, you may be brilliant, but you can't do it. But if you understand that you are nothing more than a beggar yourself who was given the bread of life, 
Perhaps you could tell another beggar where to find bread that he might eat and live too. That's the second great truth here. Share the living bread, the Savior, with those who are hungry and starving. It's really a pretty brief and simple text, but it challenges us on two fronts. First, it challenges how we think of Jesus. Is he just a great teacher or another prophet? Or is he the personification of the life of God? That's what he says. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is he the life of God which we crave and without which we are spiritually dead? Well, Jesus himself answers our quandary saying, I am the bread come down from heaven. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes on him will have everlasting life. That's what our souls are hungering for. Hungering for Jesus. Challenge which this text raises is how we think about ourselves. We're pretty competent. We have lots of talent. We may believe ourselves to be a significant gift to the Lord. He's pleased to have us, I'm sure. Or then again, are we really totally inadequate? Unable to change or fill even one hungry heart. It's only when we see our weaknesses, but nonetheless bring to Jesus whatever we have. It's only then that we're useful in his hands. And then what is our task? To be one reclaimed beggar, telling another hungry beggar, where we found the bread of life. We're called to share Jesus, the living bread, with those who are starving. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you communicated to people, not just in some philosophic language or theological constructs, object lessons, practical ways, so that we can understand what you're saying. Oh, Father, may our faith in Jesus not just be sent to a list of characteristics or truths concerning you, but may we know you as the living bread that satisfies our hungry souls. And then, Lord, may our service be all in, but so simple. Beggars who found bread telling other beggars. Give us a heart for that, Lord. Use us in our inadequacy, in our weakness. As you've been using your people who knew how weak they were for centuries. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In your bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith.